2: You are listening to Fields, the podcast, with Melissa Metrick and Wythe Marshall.
3: On Fields, we bring you stories about the future, present, and past of urban agriculture, and in general, explore really interesting concepts and meet lots of fascinating people who get up every day and grow food in and around cities, starting with the city we live in, New York City.
2: Moreover, we'll investigate all the whys behind getting up in the morning and working as a farmer in the city today. Just generally, your interest in growing and how you got excited about that, that's always like my first question. And I think Melissa, you know, usually asks that. And then also just, yeah, what you're working on now and, and what university is up to. Um, and the best way to say it, because I feel like I always say university, and I think it's meant to be university, right? Like,
4: this <laughs> Yeah, that's, that's, it's a bit of a tongue twister for some folks. So they're just like, or, or they get confused and it's like, university of what? And I'm just like, no, this it's a play on words. <laughs> Um, <laughs> I Actually, m- many people have thought that I was with Cornell because they were like, oh, you're with the big university. And I'm like, not exactly. That's not what I'm saying, but we'll get there. Um, so my name is Alexis Mena. I identify as Afro-Taino, and um, that's really the origins of my farming story. Um, I come from a Dominican-Haitian background um, and from the island of Haiti, which is the original name for that island uh, currently known as Haiti and Dominican Republic. And so the reason why I identify as Afro-Taino and a- not Afro-Latino is because uh, I come from both Black and Indigenous backgrounds um, of the island. And I don't believe that Latinidad or the identity of La- Latin folk is based on anything other than colonization. Um, so I'm, I purposely identify as that to push at my people to find new identities for ourselves. Um, But within that, I grew up um, in a lineage of people who are merchants, farmers, and what we call curanderas, um, which are medicine folk. Um, My grandmother's a curandera, my grandfather was a merchant, his grandfather was a farmer, and so on and so on. And so my grandfather uh, taught me how to grow coffee and cacao. since I was a kid and he invited us on to his farmland um, since very young. And my grandmother, my, my family's favorite game is like identify that plan, like walk through Meadows and like play that game, like what plan is this? Um, okay. So that, you know, it was, it was the thing that became entertaining uh, outside of television or like, board games at that or Nintendo 64 or whatever <laughs> <laughs> um, But it, it was, at that time, I took it for granted um, because I, I, I just thought it was just like this thing we would do as a family and not necessarily being vital information. Now I recognize that like I can forage with the best of them because I, I know what's what. Um, but it's it's something that where, you know, sometimes you don't necessarily gain appreciation for that knowledge until you come to a different age and you realize why mm-hmm. I wasn't trusted okay. you. So I'm very thankful and feel very privileged to have this experience. And my grandmother was actually... I identify. I don't identify as a man. My pronouns are they and them. And my grandmother was the first one to help me understand my identity as a two-spirited person. Um, Obviously, I I I, I'm very masculine presenting, um, but there's another part Mm -hmm. of me that chooses and and intentionally builds my divine feminine energy, Um, and a lot of that is through my farming practice and through Mm -hmm. my um, work with the land, creating um, plant medicine. And so you know, I was basically. Supporting my grandfather with livestock and with cacao and coffee growing in his um, farm, and then going back home um, during the summers of, and while I was in DR, and then supporting my grandmother with her curanderia work. Um, so both of them are influenced, uh, are were big influences on me, and that's really where the beginning of my farming started. Um, in America, it started actually in, in a lot of the green thumb community gardens. Um, my my mother was a, a garden member and that was often our playground. Like, um, you know, I, I lived in uh, East New York my entire life in this big park called Highland Park, which is a really big park. And, you know, it's, uh, com- comparable to like prospect park and stuff like that. But inside of it, there's a, a garden. And so she was a member and she we constantly were in the park in the garden, and you know, uh, intertwined in both of those worlds. And so, um, you know, and it was kind of like my chore, my, like our chores were to take care of this box to make sure we can eat tomorrow. (laughs) Um, so, Mm -hmm. and it was, it was not necessarily something I looked forward to again, but it it was something that I now appreciate, um, those lessons that my mother and my grandparents entrusted in me as well. Um, Mm -hmm. and so from there, uh, I completely did an about face. I became a capitalist. i like, my mom started she got her real estate license. I decided to do the same and I was doing real estate and mortgages. Mm -hmm. Uh, I also became a loan officer for a while, for about six years or so, um, right after high school, because I was under working under this false narrative that farming is something of the past or a hobby, um, but not a career of the future. Um, and that's how it was presented to me. Um, but my actual first experience with hydroponic farming was actually when I was 14. I, I got into the state science fair um, and I didn't think like, you know, the, the baking soda vinegar volcano was gonna cut it on that level. Um, <laughs> so I was doing research and I decided to build a tomato box. Um, and it was like a box to do a Dutch bucket system, which is a hydroponic type of system. Um, and you know, my stepfather at the time helped me build it out of wood, install the lights, and installed the system and I was able to win se- second prize and in-, in the state science fair when I was fourteen with this tomato box um,
3: Wow, which I never
4: actually successfully grew tomatoes because I only had blue lights and i didn 't understand light spectrums at that time enough to understand I needed more red and yellow lights to actually get through but hey, <laughs> 14, you
3: know, come on, be easy on yourself. 14. You know? come on, I, I mean, hey, second, second best, you know? <laughs>
4: <laughs> we made it happen either way. Um, thankful, I now identify as a reformed or former capitalist because when I got out of doing that um, work in real estate and mortgages, I still um, and I was very really thankful of understanding and getting uh, financial literacy and understanding how land and how property works in New York City, uh, which is like a gold mine in itself, right? And so I take that knowledge now to my community and um, uh, I'll tell you a little bit more about that. But basically, I'm, I'm what's known as a place maker. Um, I prefer the term place keeper. Um, But, you know, my placemaking work looks like identifying vacant lots, working with community members, and then converting those lots into gardens. So I've successfully built um, four, five community gardens, three school gardens, and two skate parks. Um, I learned this uh, ability from my mentor, um, Paula um, Hewitt, who ran a program by the name of Open Road. Um, And her thing was like building skate parks all around the city. And so i watched her do it she was actually one of the she was part of the cohort of people who were who were um squatting in the les uh over on 12a and in, in, in alphabet city and so she that's where she got her knowledge of like how to take over land how to take over property and she entrusted that information and me and a few other skaters at the time um and and little did i know that i was going to be turning around and take taking that to build community gardens <laughs> but here we are <laughs> building gardens <laughs> um, and wow. then at one point gardens gardens weren't enough like it was just not enough I, I wanted to do more, more. so I, I ventured mm-hmm. over to mm-hmm. northern California um, Pennsylvania mm-hmm. I've done you know um, seasons in Rhode Island and just got really immersed into farming and, and um, you know when I turned after the age of 25 I, I felt this need to mm-hmm. like be more quiet I grew up in the busiest loudest town. In the world, my whole life, and I was Mm -hmm. um, a very vocal person, in case you haven't already noticed. And so, um, you know, I felt like there was a need to to really get silent and really listen to the land and listen to what my ancestors Mm
2: -hmm. were trying to
4: communicate to me. Um, So during that time, like I, I did about four seasons out um, away out of the state, and during that time, I was downloading a lot of information. I was, you know, praying and um asking my ancestors to help me understand like what was next for me you know like at that point I had already been a successful you know um mm-hmm. uh, real estate agent I, I forgot to tell you but I'm also a muralist so I was a successful muralist I was able to create a career as a muralist um and now I was you know making strides as a placemaker and um I think that that was right before I traveled to Amsterdam I was asked to come out to Amsterdam to talk about my placemaking work um at the Placemakers Conference and was privileged enough to visit like a few different um, uh, farms in Holland. And I saw how, how ag tech, how different it was because ag tech was a really big part of farming in Holland, um, especially in Amsterdam and other parts where people were doing a lot of cannabis growing and a lot of like um, uh, growing of bell peppers and tomatoes for, for export um, and how much they were relying on um, drones and cyber, not cyborgs but like robots (laughs) to do a lot of that labor. And I was, a part of me grew a little fearful um, because obviously these were white people developing uh, technology that was going to displace black and brown people back at home eventually in the future who were doing this job and in in, in, in a way that created further disconnection and something that I believe um, is so important to have that connection to the land, to the food that we had. so not to say that we're opposed to ag tech. We actually develop ag tech at university, but we believe that ag tech should be an uh, an extension of the uh, something that supports the farmer's intelligence and not be, and doesn't allow them to become dependent or lack in any way. Um, so the moment that you know we introduce a piece of technology that then takes, for example, using the television, right? I would say, I would argue that people are maybe a little bit less imaginative in the world we live in today because of television. You don't have to imagine anything because there's a whole industry based on imagining Mm -hmm. things for you and then presenting those images to you, right? So what does it look like? What would that look like in the farming world? What would it look like for us to become so far removed from, from our farming practices that we rely on technology to have that connection with the land that we now further devalue the respect and the um, uh, work that we do with the land and the connection. When when Mm -hmm. we're in a time right now when it's even more important to further that relationship and to bring that relationship even deeper um, to make sure that we survive. (laughs) So Um, so so
3: Alexis, can can you talk about how you would actually use that technology?
4: Sure, yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So a lot of it right now is around monitoring. Um, And the reason why we're focusing on monitoring, such as water sensors, air quality sensors, things of that nature, is because one, it's a really easy way to introduce people into programming and how to reprogram Raspberry Pis and and small computers to create their own sensors. Mm -hmm. Um, And in the black and brown community, there's not enough of that. There's not enough, um, you know, we don't have coding academies. We don't have um, fab labs where people can learn how to do these things. But the moment that you you can prove to someone that it's simple to create this kind of sensor, now they become curious as to what else they can do. Um, and these sensors, mm-hmm. along mm-hmm. with the education of how to build them, the reason behind them, a lot of times is the environmental mm-hmm. racism that happens in our communities, right? Um, a lot of the time we have Air and water quality in Black and Brown communities because of the uh, industrial, um, the 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 national or global epidemic of um, uh, race-based, you know, propping of businesses primarily in Black Mm -hmm. and Brown neighborhoods. Um, And so, I'm a firm believer that a part of this BLM movement, part of this reparation movement, part of the back to land. Back to the Land Movement is for us to create the technologies necessary to combat this environmental racism and to and to create solutions. I think there's a huge future in that, right? There's a huge future in us using technology to solve the problems of the, of the people who experience them by the people who experience them. Right? Because who knows the solution better than the people who are actually going through it themselves? And so, uh, you know, that to me is where I hope ag tech, and, and, and green tech um, can really come into communities of color to support us freeing or liberating ourselves from these uh, institutional errors that have been created prior to us. While it's not necessarily problems that we've created for ourselves, but they are problems that we need to solve because no one's going to solve them for us.
3: Yeah. Or or they think they're solving it, but they're not like, you know, it's, it's yeah.
2: Yeah. That's kind of where my mind goes is like, have you seen can you speak to um, successes or things in New York that have inspired you in that direction or things you're drawing upon um, maybe that's by way of saying you know where you're at now with this model like I love everything you're saying about it. like how ag tech could be used differently not just in a way to make money by replicating the AG system we already have where a few people are controlling most of those decisions but giving more tools out um, having people more connected to their food in different ways um, But yeah, I'm just curious, uh, you know, you mentioned Green Thumbs. Are there other groups that are really great or that you're working with? Um, And, you know, yeah, like how does that led you to to what you're up to today?
3: Yeah,
4: I mean, I I agree with you. The decentralization of power and of industry is super important, right? That's how we got into a world of monocropping and mass uh, industrial uh, agriculture was these people working in silos and commodifying and looking at crops as an export instead of seeing the value it brings to communities when you have clean, clean, fresh food, right? So now we have places like Chile and Uruguay that export more food than they have in their country, and those will say people aren't even privy to getting the fi- finest quality food that they're even producing inside of the country, right? So imagine how terrible it would be if we started 100 urban farms in Brooklyn and less than 1% of that is going to the communities of color who need that food most, right? So that's terrifying. Um, some of the organizations that we're working with in regards to that is uh, Key Tech Solutions, which is one of the members here at University, who's helping us develop uh, uh, networking and sensors, right? So a big part of what we're doing is, like, how do we create um, networking possibilities for urban farms across the city, right? So how are these farmings, how are these farms talking to each other? How are they sharing information, you know? Um, if if wife can grow a tomato better than I can, um, and a lot of that it comes down to the conditions in which he's utilizing in his system, then why can't that information be open source so I can replicate those conditions in my system so I can get that amazing tomato anyway, right? Because there's this scarcity model that's been built into farming, and that's problematic, right? We We think that we're constantly in competition with it, even in the urban ag market right now, right? When I talk to other uh, aquaponic or hydroponic farms, sometimes they're very reluctant to let you own the farm or give you too much information about their farm because they all consider it intellectual property, right? So with this IP movement of of investors and angel investors and, and venture capitalists trying to buy people's intellectual property, people have decided that it is best to keep that information and all of that data internally so they can then leverage it um where i see that as a next wave of surveillance capitalism right surveillance capitalism is it's 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 now intertwining into our food systems you know where where people have this scarcity mindset they feel like they can't share and i think the 3d printing um industry is a great example of that right you had so you had a a whole industry of people saying all 3d printing and 3d printing um, technology should be open source and you had a other s- sector of people saying absolutely not this intellectual property private as possible right ultimately we know who won that fight but I think that like the same fight is happening right now in agriculture where people are willing to talk about permaculture and biodynamic farming when it comes to nonprofit farms but the moment you mention as a for-profit farm people are willing to, are, are not so willing to share that information or kind of cut you out of the conversation.
2: I, I think you hit the nail on the head with with IP. I mean, I think that's so so interesting that these farms view everything they're doing as intellectual property and the language that creates. Like at the same time, people will tell me that their farm is about some kind of justice project, but also that it's IP. And it's like they don't understand the sort of inherent contradiction that like the idea of kind of um, private property at all, but especially, you know, then moving into these different you know, ethereal registers where like your ideas can be commodified, you know, can be owned by corporations, um, that that might be in conflict with some sort of justice project and, and more equitable world. Um, It just seems like it is this, uh, there is this tension right now within a lot of ag tech companies where I feel like people want to do something good, but they see themselves as needing to participate in this tech world economy and, and thus create IP, defend IP, um, and I, I do think it's, it's exactly as you're playing out. It's like you can see how this works again and again with computing and, and those technologies, you know, 3D printing, et cetera. Um, it well, didn't I, I, want,
4: I want to call it out, Wyeth. And I, and I think that it's something that needs to be said. It's pandering. You know, a lot of the times these organizations are pandering and saying that, oh, we're a social enterprise. We're a, we have this social justice model because they know that that's what people want to hear. And that's what makes people more open to willing to buy this product at the end of the day. But there's no actual absolute truth behind it you know you can't say you're for the people and then say well you have to pay this to get into the door you know like
2: <laughs> yeah yeah
4: yeah stop yeah. being for the people as as soon as you try to make a profit off of it. and that's where university differs you know what we're looking what's food sovereignty to us looks like is creating economic mobility inside of the communities that need the food and they're the ones controlling the food system. So if the people who are, who are in most need aren't the ones growing and aren't the ones directly benefiting from that food, mm-hmm. then there's no food sovereignty in your movement. There's no, there's no um, uh, community control of it. You're just creating a private entity and shifting the dependence from one system to the other. You know, what we're looking to do is create an interdependent system that allows people to have a playground and a space to come up with ideas and come up with the innovations themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. what we are is an incubator space for ag tech and for food businesses. So they can then figure it out, you know, cause that's what we don't have right now, especially people of color. We don't have places to go and make mistakes. You know, we don't have a place to go and be able to, and figure it out for ourselves. It, you know, it's right now, it seems like you have uh, a startup, you figure out what your IP is. And then once you once you have a, a, a model that you can sell to an investor, the investor comes and floods you with dollars, right? But at the end of that, what they're saying is that this is the down payment so that we have the rights over the future profits, right? So that they're giving you $20 million a day so that they can have that $20 billion that you're going to generate 10 or 20 years from now. Mm-hmm. And what we're saying to people is that like, If we can raise the capital to figure out how to maintain the space today, then we can figure out how to split that 20 billion tomorrow and it be a a cooperative move, you know. And that's why we base ourselves in in social enterprise and cooperative um, uh, uh, business practices, because we don't believe that centralizing power under the university label is going to be empowering to us at all. If anything, all it does is further um, dependency onto now a, another system. Um, and you know, I, I just want to mention that uh, this a huge, huge inspiration for this has been the book um, "Winner Take All." Winners Take All by Anand uh, V. Uh, I don't want to mess up his name because he's an amazing uh, author, and I don't want to chop it up. But uh, winners, in the book "Winners Take All." He, you know, he he gives us a warning. He says, you know, you have to be very care- careful of people who say, oh, we're billionaires and we're philanthropists and we're here to save the world. Don't trust those people, right? Because the reason is because, you know, I'm not the hugest believer in government and policy, but I do see the power of policy and government in places, right? Policy and government shifts society. Um, and when we give uh, billionaires and people who are, who are saying that they're here for to provide social enterprise, but it's only that a performance. What we're doing is giving them the power over say in our in our in our society. Who's to say that Elon Musk and Bill Gates know better than you and I on how this world needs to change? They they're not qualified. They 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 have specialized in creating electric cars or creating this 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 um computer chip but it doesn't mean that they are the best ones or the ones who whose voice should be Leading the conversation in topics on how to save the world, you know, if we want to talk about and invite him into a conversation about how to build the best electric car, hell yeah, I'm all for it. But we can't fool ourselves to believe that just because someone has been successful in creating a successful business means that now they have to be the authority on how, what philanthropy, or what the future of a certain industry looks like, Um, because it's just going to be selling ourselves short, and it's just furthering the oligarchy um, that we're creating in our in our uh, uh, community, in our nation. Today.
3: Yeah. And it's also like the people that we pick as these symbols, like exactly what you're saying, like these, like we think that they have this intelligence and we put them on this pedestal or have them be the symbol when it's like exactly what you said. It's like, yeah, tell me how electric cars work. That's great. You're doing great in that end, but... Yeah, totally. Mm-hmm. And and also that's like I mean I know I shouldn't go there, but it's like that's a huge problem of you know who our president is today. It's like, dude, dude like <laughs> I don't know. It's just
4: no. Thank you yeah. for going there. I think it. I think like that's a that's a great warning of what the rest of the world can 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 look forward to. Because what happens when we have actors in these spaces where we need real people with real ideas, right? Like America needs right now, a strong leader. And because we allowed ourselves to be fooled by this actor. Now here we are in the pandemic, losing hundreds of, sorry, tens of thousands of lives that should not have been played with in the beginning. If we had someone who actually knew what they were doing in office. So it's a sad example of what we need to protect ourselves for the future. Yeah, and I think I
2: think it's also important to note that, like your Radis, I think is saying you can't trust like um, the Elon Musk's to save you from Trump or the Warren Buffets to save you from the Musk's. Like at some level, they're all very self-interested. To your point, they're also very narrowly. Like they don't really know what's best for everyone. Um, it's not that much different from any other. You know, whether it's the craziest person in the room or the least crazy, but it's still that that power being concentrated that you talked about earlier. I think you see that at, at high levels um, in like the U.S. government, but also, yeah, like in agriculture. I mean, I think I think a lot of us are in the same. You know, like how do you centralize systems or have systems where you know one person's not making the choices, even if they do seem like a decent person? It's like why should they make so many choices for so many people? Um, and how did we get to this point? You know, and I, and I think like even just unraveling the history of it, like I've tried to learn that, and it's it's like so complex and touches on so many other aspects um, that just yeah, it's amazing to see how it's all leapfrogged together to reach this point um, where so much wealth and you know so so many decisions are made by so few. So no, I really appreciate you you going there. And yeah, I think it's totally appropriate to like we don't only have to talk about you know urban ag meaning like community gardens or you know one hydroponic system. I think it is tied together. Why why are these systems appealing? Why why are why is there a need? Um, so that's something I think Melissa you and I have asked a lot about. You know, like the root. Yeah,
4: I think it's really important for farmers to to. Be in communication and being conversation about both the macro and the micro, right? It's just as important to talk about what's happening on your land as it is what is talk to talk about what is happening uh, collectively to the farming community. Especially when Trump was campaigning on on being the farmer's choice president, right? He was yes. he was like campaigning on being like, oh, farmers trust me, I'm here for the farmers. And all too often, he proved himself time and time again that that wasn't true. He was serving in the interests of himself and the organizations that he presents while using farmers and using us as a tool to gain better relationships with china at the time
3: yeah and how well did those trade deals work out for farmers right (laughs) (laughs)
4: terrible (laughs) terrible
3: seriously and then covid hit and then they had to throw away all their produce it's just like you know i don't
1: This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington DC's quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the Tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the Tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com.
2: Well, we talk talk about the politicization of farmer as a class of person a lot um, because Everyone wants to support farmers, but what does that really mean? And who gets supported? They give away money, but it goes to the big farms. Um, And when you look at especially, yeah, like farmers of color who owns land and how that's, you know, land loss is like accelerated even under Obama. I mean, it's like, it seems like such an, um, you know, in terms of of like problems, like, wow, that's a low hanging fruit problem that I think a lot of people could get behind like doing something about, but it hasn't, it's obviously not going to happen with Trump. But, you know, you wonder like, what would it take? Um, And and is it going to come more from I don't know, like models like you're describing, you know, is it about new models? It's about, I don't know. Um, that's not really a coherent question, but I just- well,
3: But also maybe it can tie in with um, Alexis, like your work with, um, uh, uh, what, what we are calling it, with, with Paula Hewitt, um, the open road work with um, place, what, what is it called? Placemaking. Placemaking. So maybe that is where it could tie in with the idea of property and land. And Can yeah. you explain placemaking a little bit more?
4: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, uh, placemaking is a concept that came out, uh, I think, in the 60s or 50s, and there were uh, city planners and urban designers were trying to understand how to navigate um, urban environments during the time when there was an, there was like uh, urban renewal, right? So there were the all these after white flight. There were all these spaces that were dilapidated and, and that were, you know, falling apart. But these were also uh, central uh, commercial spaces for people to do business and in industrial in, industry and things like that. So <clears throat> what they decided to do was create public and private, public and private partnerships to invest in spaces and and a lot of like the first, you know, um, you can you can say some would say that Central Park was a big placemaking project at the same because there was an entire village there prior to Seneca village was a, a prominent village a successful village that was in the middle of Manhattan but because city planners decided well in order for this uh space to be successful in the long run we need more green spaces which means now we have to coincidentally displace all these black mm-hmm. and brown people from their land and it wasn't just black and brown people also white, Italian and Irish migrants there. Um, But because they were of the poor class and and they in some ways saw themselves in the same as the same as people of color in those spaces, um, they were displaced. Right. So the same thing like White was just saying in regards to black farmers, when the idea of uh, the, or the concept of a Black farmer was devalued, it was easier to, to take away land from them, right? Because now you have the American Gothic image in your, man, in your mind of a, of a white middle-aged farmer with his white wife, and you're saying that's what a farmer looks like, yeah. right? So of course it's easy for us to take land away from a Black farmer because that's not what a farmer looks like. That's what a slave looks like, you know? So, and if we're anti-slave, that means that we're anti-Black people farming. So th- yeah. these are like subconscious signals that we send to ourselves in the way that like mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. how do we shift these paradigms how do we shift these um falsehoods that we've created for ourselves in our society um and i'm sorry i'm, I'm going to answer your question about what placemaking is um but this but is it, great it, this
3: is great <laughs> yeah
4: but it's, it's it's you know it's it's this um silent collaboration of both industry and 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 uh, municipalities to work together in in ways that outwardly facing are beneficial to the community but often inwardly facing Mm -hmm. there Mm -hmm. for selfish or for industrial reasons that aren't necessarily for the betterment of the community at all. Yeah
2: and I I think that's so it's so it's almost uncanny you mentioned that idea because I feel like that's so much of my work is focused on is this idea of making land or making farmland in the city and have you know indoor farms often claim to kind of make more land on the same you know horizontal footprint by going up but i think a lot of that to your point it's it's used it's a performative act to to get certain people interested to, to seem green and, and futuristic but it's not necessarily doing much in terms of like making place it's it's making land without making anthropological place like a place where communities are and i think it's really interesting to think about what it it, it does look like to make different kinds and keep to your point place keeping like how do you keep a community where they have the physical space that is appropriate to them, you know, that they want? Um, and what, what kind of collaborations emerge if you did have a good city mm-hmm. government? Like, what, what actually would be a good way to work together and not always con- contested, you know? Like, I, I mean, these are just things I'm, like, thinking of. Um, sorry, Melissa, it looked like you.
3: Yeah, I mean, w- what you were saying, what, the first thing that came up to me was, like, how do you make land inside of a private building? You know and private property when you have to pay rent and all this other stuff like like how is that land accessible you know so i always think about the point of having indoor places either inside the building or on the roof or something like that and um you know that is you might have to rent that property whereas if it's a vacant land or something like that i don't know why in my brain that Seems like it might be a little bit more accessible, or even like today, I planted a a tree pit, like a street tree pit, and like people walk by, and everybody's like, "Oh, look up, look what you're doing," you know. And so it's like that is in itself kind of, you know, just the community could see it, could feel like I don't know, just. But Alexis, what do you think about this?
4: Yeah, I, I mean, I can, I, I've witnessed that. I've witnessed how, like, you know, just earlier today a uh, father and two little girls were walking past university and they saw that we were like full of plants. And their first, I, I was like, we have something called the community friendly fridge set up. And we, well, I was offering them like produce. Like I was just like, Hey, there's free produce there. You're welcome to grab a bag. As much produce you want. No, no fee, no charge. And they turned around and told me like a produce sounds nice, but we want plants. And I wasn't expecting that at all. Right. I was expecting them to be like, yeah, free carrots, free cabbage, free watermelon that's dope but and not that they weren't open to that but what they were asking for was to take a piece of this green serene life that they were that they saw that we were creating here that they wanted a part of that for themselves you know which is why you have people stop you at that tree pit is because they want a part of that for themselves they want that the, the tranquility and the healing that comes with working with the land to be able to take back home with them yeah um and, you know, and that's the beauty of placemaking. That's the beauty of placekeeping. Place because now you can show people the value of what it is that, you know, I, I think that, like, often, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a native New Yorker, born and raised in East New York, Brooklyn. Um, and I grew up in a neighborhood where I, I walked past empty lots every day um, and saw them as a problem. I didn't see the opportunity, you know. And then there were other people, uh, some would call gentrifiers, coming to my community and seeing that as, as, as an opportunity so i had to readjust my eyes i had to look at this from a new lens to really understand what is it that they're seeing that i don't see you know and and what <clears throat> what privileges do those people have that i don't that they can turn around and turn and and create something that would take me 50 to 100 years to create you know um and then you have to really analyze and I'm, wife i think this is a great thing for you to look at in your research that you're doing is
2: <clears throat>
4: where are these urban farms located? And, and, and a lot of the times, who is the end user, right? So who's purchasing the food? So you'll find that one, a lot of these urban farms are popping up in the most gentrified neighborhoods neighborhoods that are, are quickly being gentrified. And then their end user or, or who they're selling it to is that is the same community of gentrif- gentrifiers. That are looking to displace those folks, right? So someone, a mother of, of two or three wouldn't be able to pay $7 or whatever, $5 a head for, for a head of lettuce, right? But that's who these urban farms are appealing to. So the success of these rooftop farms and these indoor uh, grow operations have been based on ushering in this new wave of gentrification. Um, while. <laughs> We've gotten so much pushback, and we're we're just like, well, we want to serve the institutions and the communities that don't have those privileges. Where's the model for that? And everyone's kind of looking at us like, there's no money in that. And we want to push back. We don't believe that that is true. You know, like one of the things that we're we're focusing on right now is we're working with Teams for Food Justice, Collective Fair, and universities to create a SNAP box benefit. Right. So like, what is it? Uh, We're right now distributing about 1,400 boxes of um, free food on a weekly basis, thanks to City Harvest and to Green Top Farms, but we've noticed that there was a whole working class of people who didn't feel comfortable taking this free box because they felt like they were taking away from someone else um, or taking an opportunity from someone else, but they would be willing to contribute a few dollars to buy, buy a box, right? So, and this is a little bit different from a CSA model because we're showing up with the food prior to to growing it so what what we're in the midst of doing is being able to create Mm -hmm. our own you know fresh direct for the hood you know what i mean like fresh direct doesn't come to brownsville or east new york to deliver food so if they're not going to come to us then how do we build our own you know um how do we create our own models that employ and that are owned by our own people you know worker like employees of fresh direct are going to benefit from the um the, the the derivatives or the money that's made in the future by Fresh Direct. But the models that we're looking to create and like another example is Brooklyn Packers who we work with, right? Brooklyn Packers mm-hmm. is a worker owned cooperative. That means that if you're packing with them and you're on a on on what is an entry level position, you have just as much decision and 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 um, decision making power as the president of that company. One member, one vote. You know, I I don't know any large organizations working with that kind of ideology um, because they put the power, uh, both economic and political power, in the hands of their shareholders. And they disenfranchise their workers. So they have no problem taking on the labor and the benefits of that labor, um, but they're not willing to share the, the collective um, economic and political power that they generate through that labor with their workers. And I think that that's, <clears throat> that's where capitalism has failed us. That's where we have created a huge deficit in our communities and, and where, where you see people pushing back on a farming level, on a distribution level, on, you know, so many different levels of the food system um, that people are just tired. They don't want to work the land with, unless they either own the land, or are they getting, you know, profit sharing from the from what they're picking? And my response to that is right on. That's exactly what we should be demanding. That's exactly what we should be doing. Because if that were the case, then the indigenous people of this land and the black and brown hands that have been working this land for decades would be in positions of power. They wouldn't be having to beg for them for ICE to not, not knock at their door or to stop harassing their families because they would be landowners by now. They would be, you know powerful business folk by now um and and would have positions of uh of power to be able to um dictate what the future of this uh country is
2: i'm so glad you said that i mean we've we've talked before it's like i feel like some people really love urban farming but they're afraid of of actually looking at the city and you know things like gentrification and the role that one might play and that that, you know it is a complex it's like you can't just have like a nice urban farm and not address anything else going on in the city. And I think it'd be, it's so much more fruitful. I think it's more realistic long-term for sure to ask for the other way, you know, it's like, well, what, what would it look like if a community had more power over its land, over its food um, than what farmerizes as opposed to like, Oh, what would be a cool farm? Let me just drop it in. Um, you know, let me shop around for real estate. Right.
3: I think it's also just that, that exactly what you said, Alexis, the power of land, the power of property, in this country like you know it's just it's just it that being a part of you know what's going on today um of just for hundreds of years you know who has owned the land and it's time and that is part of the conversation of like it's that needs to end you know just in that sense. And, and the idea of, of ownership, right? Like how powerful that is. And I could understand like looking at it, like I've looked at a lot of vacant lots and I'm coming from a totally different perspective. I'm probably coming more from like the gentrifier's perspective, but it's like, I've been a grower for a long, for you know, for a little while now, and I look at a vacant land, and I'm like, that's a lot of work. (laughs) I'm like, I don't know if I could do that work right now. (laughs) Like, I'm old now. Like, I don't know if I could do that work. I know how much work that is. And especially if I'm gonna, if like, you know, me and a bunch of people convert that land or something, if we're gonna lose it in a year, you know, if we're gonna lose it in two years, and how many times do you want to go through that? How many times can you go through that? Like put that work into
4: yeah. it and then lose it. Yeah, three of the of the four community gardens that I started have been sold to HPD for development. So I, I know exactly how that works. It's not a great feeling, and you know it's it's also disappointing for the community because now you've asked people to invest in this space and their time and attention, and now you know they they have going up to replace it is is a building that they can't afford with apartments of people that don't look or want to interact with them you know so it's they're losing so much more and and a lot of the times i i want us to hold the city accountable because a lot of times the city is deceptive and saying oh here's this piece of land create this community garden create this thing and what they're doing is is they're trying to harness the energy and the focus and the beauty in this space to make it easier to sell to a developer right because if you come up across a a piece of lot that has, you know, three vacant uh, cars that have been abandoned, a boat, and like a you know, reminiscence of a burning building. It's gonna be a lot harder for you to be able to sell that land to someone if you come if they if you can tell them, hey, look, here's a community of people who've been utilizing and stewarding this land for for three years, you know, and that's exactly what happened to us in East New York several times.
3: Yeah, and and it's just you know I could. And also just like the community space in general, it's like, that is where the community is gathering. That's where like people have, you know, birthday parties or like performances or like all this other stuff. And also it's just like, that's where my, my tree is that i planted. That's like now 20 years old and I'm going to lose it. You know, just that the other interesting thing that I don't know in a lot of the interviews and growers that we've talked to, and I've been thinking about it more is the idea of that we are um as growers and and gardeners and farmers, we decide to work with these other beings that plants are beings you know and and what happens when we know we're gonna lose them you know yeah. I think that's another that's a another weird level, but like
4: No, no, there's, there's, hey, they've proven that plants feel pain, you know, like they, there's literally like, you know, there's, there's a science that proves that plants experience pain as well, you know, like, there's a biological, biological change. So like, what I'm hearing you saying is there's two, two levels of trauma, one being experienced by the people and another one being experienced by the land, you know, like, how do you think, Mm -hmm. how do you think um, Mm -hmm. a child reacts when you take it from its home and rip it away from its roots you know and put it in a community that doesn't that that it doesn't belong in it's the same thing a plant is experiencing when you're ripping it from its roots and not allowing it to grow in what they thought was fertile land for them to be able to continue to thrive um and in my own spiritual practice you know that's it's a major disrespect to the land you know you you mm-hmm. every there, there are some plants mm-hmm. that are sacred to um, look after mm-hmm. Rue, Tulsi and a few others, mm-hmm. but 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 all plants are considered sacred in
2: mm-hmm.
4: being a steward, right? So when you participate in this sacred act of supporting the restoration of the land, you are imbuing your energy into that land. You're imbuing your, your prosperity, your hopes, your dream in with that seed, in with that plant. And it begins to, you know, some would say your electromagnetic energy is, is being put into that and is helping to support that plant, right? Because there's um, EC or, or one of the things that we um, monitor in aquaponic and hydroponic farming is your EC, your electric conductivity, right? Which is often measured by how much salt is in, in there, right? But what we're not looking at is the electrical currents that are being bounced off of the mycelium, all the bacteria and all the plant matter that's happening. And so don't you think that when you bend down on your knees and your hands and you touch that plant, you're also exchanging electricity and light with that, with that plant. Um, and so I don't think we've done enough research and understand the, our what our relationship is to, to, to plants. But in a lot of ways, we don't need to, because the moment you visit a botanical garden or you step into a garden, you feel it. It's, a, it's, it's a, it's a, uh, immediate, um, sense of being able to open up and being able to breathe differently and interact differently with people you know I've been in the worst moods and in the moment I get into land and put my hands in soil I feel so much better and I'm just like oh this is what I needed like you know like I thought I was hungry but actually what I needed was like my feet in the grass for a while you know Um, and it's a beautiful experience
3: and, and, uh, that, that kind of makes me think like today I was riding my bike home and I rode through the park and it was so hot outside and I was under these huge trees. Like the, the bike path went under these huge trees and it was just like this cool air. And it was just this, I was like, man, this is, this is where I need to be. <laughs> like just riding on my bike through this, you know, huge patch of trees. And I was like, this is, I almost felt like this is the answer in the way, not the answer to, I mean, it is the answer to climate change, but, you know, just the, the, that sense of it's, you know, outside in the sun, it was like 96 degrees. And then once I got to this place, it almost felt safer. Does that make mm, sense?
4: Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, I, 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 you know, we... We are lucky enough to have received a four-star rating today on Google. I got an alert a few minutes ago, and the only comment was, um, "University is a safe place for me," you know, and like that meant a lot to us.
2: So, like, what is University, and how should we support you and what you're doing, and like, how can people connect? You know. Thank you.
4: So, University is an aquaponic farm, um, and an incubator space for um, food-based and ag-based businesses um, and creative businesses um, to be able to create a, uh, or have space to be able to incubate their projects. Um, so we are, have about 10,000 square feet inside of the East New York Industrial Zone, and we're looking to expand into 40,000 square feet to be able to provide a space for people of the community to create um, solutions, You know, to create solutions to the waste issues, to create solutions to the environmental issues, to create solutions to the food scarcity issues that we're all experiencing in this in this town. Um, because let's be honest, if, if, if COVID hit and the, the 18 wheelers stopped moving, there would have been a lot more of us dead right now, right? Our food system is completely broken. It, it, it works in um, codependent ways that are unsupportive of each other. And so the, we have something about it. And I think COVID helped us understand what our strengths were, which is our connection to our community and our our, our ability to be flexible and responsive and adapt to what the community needs were. Um, so while we were fundraising for our um, farm, because uh, it's not completely operational at this moment, um, we were focusing on education. So we were doing a lot of education programs. I was managing a hydroponic farm inside of a middle school teams for food justice. And so um, that's where I've been for the last couple of months while doing this work. But when COVID shifted, obviously the farm and the school had to shut down, and I fought to keep it open as a resource for the community. Um, And since then, we've, we've started a food distribution program of about 1,400 to 2,000 boxes of food on a weekly basis that goes out to Brownsville, East New York, and Bushwick. Um, and uh, primarily through City Harvest, Green Top Farms, Brownsville, uh, multifamily services and a few other organizations that we work with to distribute that food. Um, and so right now what university is is focused on is that distribution, but getting on track to finish our farm, right? Because we are an aquaponic farm. Right now we're experimenting with starting or incubating wrong word. We are breeding the first um catfish that is for indoor farming in the northeast region right so when you take a seed of red corn from california you have to now get that seed to aggregate to the climate of the northeast you're going to be growing it in new york city same thing we're doing with with this catfish catfish are primarily uh grown out in south carolina mississippi and in the south and what we're trying to do is acclimate a um the mixture of a channel catfish with the blue fin catfish to be able to grow successfully indoors um, inside of uh, northeast region. Um, and so we're bec- we're on our way to becoming a hatchery in, in collaboration with um, salvation uh, and praise seafood. Apart from that, we're um, developing our own um, makeshift or or um, custom uh, aquaponic farms. Uh, as as well as working with We Are Earth and the Growbox code to provide um, retrofitted shipping containers um, that house um, hydroponic farms similar to the ones used by Square Roots. Um, But the difference that we're making is we're not trying to get to Mars with it. What we're trying to do is put it in the hands of the people of this community so that um, we can have Living classrooms in every school. We can have hydroponic farms at every senior center and um, you know hydroponic farms at every hospital so that the carbon footprint and the uh, nu- nu- nutrient density of the food being provided to these spaces are, is as high as possible because the carbon footprint is as minimal as possible. Um, and these people are being trained and being given the opportunity to both either own or operate um, these farms themselves. And so we entice you all and we ask you all to go to our GoFundMe page and contribute to our crazy goal of $250,000. we are only 23000 in right now. Um, but we really believe that if we get that two hundred fifty k, we can start implementing and building the systems that we need in order to really be independent of um, you know, banks or other institutions that are going to access to do things we don't want to do. Yeah.
3: I mean, 10%, that's not bad. Getting there.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
4: not bad, not bad. <laughs>
3: not bad.
2: Yeah. yeah, I mean, you got to start. And yeah, I mean, it's a crazy time to be raising money. Like, it's a pandemic. So um, yeah, definitely donate. Um, and that's that's GoFundMe. Uh, and then we're looking for...
4: The name of the campaign is Grow Brownsville. So University City is the social enterprise um, in the incubator space, but Grow Brownsville is the cooperative that we're creating um, for people to join, so you can be a cooperative member of Un of Grow Brownsville and be a worker owner that then learns and operates their own farm, whether it's internal inside of our property or whether it's external. Oh,
2: well, Alexis, thank you. Um, I yeah. the, the the new like model or not even it's not even necessarily new, but but I love what you're doing, bringing to New York. You know this model of of owning, operating, working on the farm, living with the community. Um, you know, not not having those things be so separate. Um, is really great. So thank you for making time, Melissa. Do you have any any last uh, thoughts or questions?
3: No, just yeah. Thank you for for making the time to speak with us. And um, this work sounds incredible. And so um, yeah, we're we're really glad that we got to have you on and talk about it. And also um, ways that you know more people could hear about it and support it. And yeah, it's yeah, it's great. So thank you.
4: Thank you, guys. And I'll follow up in the email with a link to our GoFundMe.
2: Yeah, we'll, we'll put links in the episode notes. Um, and, yeah, we'll have to talk again soon, man. We'll, we'll make time.
4: Absolutely. And if I may, I offer a suggestion. My friend Amber over here, who's a little camera shy, is also a Black farmer. <laughs> you can find her at Amber Tam in Instagram. And she has a mission of converting 15 to 13 acres of the Great Lawn in Central Park back into a farm recognizing the semblance of seneca village which i spoke about earlier um so check her out she does amazing work and she works at brooklyn grange so she's an active black farmer right now
3: great thank that's
2: you awesome. yeah i love that project uh, that's that's such a cool idea um we will definitely yeah let's... yeah
3: amber we we're gonna have to have you on sorry <laughs> <laughs> i'll
4: send you i'll send you guys some links to her work Great,
3: All right. thank thanks you so much okay thank you guys Fields' theme music is by Sam Tyndall.
2: Our amazing producing engineer at Heritage Radio is Liam Werner. And another big thanks to Liam Werner for the music on this episode.
3: Fields is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org,